Section six of Catherine Lauderdale, Volume two by Francis Marion Crawford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter twenty one. In the grey dawn of Friday morning, Catherine woke from a broken sleep to face the reality of what she had done twenty-four hours earlier. It had snowed very heavily during the night, and her first conscious perception was of that strange cold glare which the snow reflects, and which makes even a bedroom feel like a chilly outer hall into which the daylight penetrates through thick panes of ground glass. She had slept very little, and against her will, losing consciousness from time to time out of sheer exhaustion, and roused again by the cruel reuniting of the train of thought. Those who have received a wound by which a principal nerve has been divided know how intense is the suffering when the severed cords begin to grow together with agonizing slowness, day by day and week by week, convulsing the whole frame of the man in their meeting. Catherine felt something like that each time that the merciful curtains of sleep were suddenly torn asunder between herself and the truth of the present. The pain was combined of many elements, too, and each hurt her in its own way. There was the shame of the thing first, the burning, scarlet shame. The thought of it had a colour for her. John Ralston was disgraced in the eyes of all the world. Even the smooth-faced dandy, fresh from college, young Van der Water, might sneer at him and welcome, and feel superior to him, for never having gone so far in folly. Now if such men as Van der Water knew the story, it was but a question of hours, and all society must know it too. Society would set down John Ralston as a hopeless case. Catherine wondered, with a sickening chill, whether the virtuous, like her father, would turn their backs on Ralston and refuse to know him. She did not know, but Ralston was her husband. The thought almost drove her mad. There was that condition of the inevitable in her position which gives fate its hold over men's minds. She could not escape. She could not go back to the point where she had been yesterday morning and begin her life again. As she had begun it, so it must go on to the very end, until death them should part. The life of a spotless girl married to a man who was the very incarnation of a disgusting vice. In those first moments it would have been a human satisfaction to have been free to blame someone besides herself for what she had done. But even now, when every bitter thought seemed to rise up against John Ralston, she could not say that the fault had been his if she had bound herself to him. To the very last he had resisted. This was Friday morning, and on the Wednesday night at the Thirlwalls he had told her that he could not be sure of himself. By and by, perhaps, that brave act of his might begin to tell in his favour with her, but not yet. The faces, the expressions, the words of those from whom she had learned the story of his doings were before her eyes and present in her hearing now, as she lay wide awake in the early morning, staring with hot eyes at the cold grey ceiling of her room. It was only yesterday that her sister Charlotte had sat there, lamenting her imaginary woes. How Catherine had despised her! Had she not deliberately chosen of her own free will, and was she not bound to stand by her choice, out of mere self-respect?' 
and Catherine had felt then that, come what might, for good or ill, better or worse, honour or dishonour, she was glad that she had married John Ralston, and that she would face all imaginable deaths to help him, even a little. But now, now it was different. He had failed her at the very outset. It was not that others had turned upon him, despising him wholly for a partial fault. The public disgrace made it all worse than it might have been, but it was only secondary, after all. The keenest pain was from the thrust that had entered Catherine's own heart. It had been with him as though she had not existed. He had not been strong enough, for her sake, on their wedding day, the day of days to her, to keep himself sober from three o'clock in the afternoon until ten o'clock at night. Only seven hours, Catherine repeated to herself in the cold snow glare of the early morning, seven little hours. Her lips were hot and dry with anger, and her hands were cold as she thought of it. It was not only the weakness of him, contemptible as that was, if it had at least been weakness for something less brutal, less beastly, less degrading. Catherine chose the strongest words she could think of, and smote him with them in her heart. Was he not her husband, and had she not the right to hate and despise what he had done? It was bad enough, as she said it, and as it appeared to most people that morning. There was not a link missing in the evidence, from the moment when John had begun to lose his temper with Minor at the club, until he had been brought home insensible to his mother's house by a couple of policemen. His relations and his best friends were all convinced that he had been very drunk, and there was no reason why society in general should be more merciful than his own people. Robert Lauderdale said nothing, but when he saw the paragraph in a morning paper describing Mr. John R.'s drunken encounter with a professional pugilist, he regarded the statement as an elucidatory comment on his interview with his great-nephew. No one spoke of the matter in Robert Lauderdale's presence, but the old gentleman felt that it was a distinct shame to the whole family, and he inwardly expressed himself strongly. The only one who tried to make matters look a little better than everyone believed they were was Hamilton Bright. He could not deny the facts, but he put on a cheerful countenance and made the best of them, laughing good-humouredly at John's misfortune, and asking everyone who ventured an unfavourable comment whether John was the only man alive on that day in the city of New York, who had once been a little lively, recommending the beardless critics of his friend's conduct to go out and drive cattle in the Nascimento Valley if they wished to understand the real properties of alcohol and making the older ones feel uncomfortable by reminding them vividly of the errors of their youth. But no one else said anything in Ralston's favour. He was down just then, and it was as well to hit him when everybody was doing the same thing. Catherine tried to make up her mind as to what she should do, and she did not find it an easy matter. It would be useless to deny the fact that what she felt for Ralston on that morning bore little resemblance to love. She remembered vaguely, and with wonder, how she had promised to stand by him, and help him to her utmost to overcome his weakness. How was she to help him now? How could she play a part and conceal the anger, the pain, the shame that boiled and burned in her? If he should come to her, what should she say? She had promised that she would never refer to the matter in any way, 
when it had seemed but the shadow of a possibility but it had turned into the reality so soon and into such a reality far more repulsive than anything of which she had dreamed besides she added in her heart it was unpardonable on that day of all days married as she was but forgive she could not and would not wounded love is less merciful than any hatred and catherine could not help deepening the wound by recalling every circumstance of the previous evening from the moment when she had looked in vain for john's face in the crowded room until she had broken down and asked hester crowdie to bring her home she rose at last to face the day undecided worn out with fatigue and scared had she been willing to admit the fact by the possibilities of the next twelve hours half dressed she paused and sat down to think it all over again all she knew for she had yet to learn the end of the story she had been married just four and twenty hours yesterday at that very time life had been before her joyous hopeful merry all that was to be had glistened with gold and gleamed with silver with the silver of dreamland and the gold of hope having love set as a jewel in the midst today the precious things were but dross and tinsel and cheap glass for it was all over and there was no returning real life was beginning began had begun the reality of an existence not defined except in the extent of its suffering but desperately limited in the possibilities of its happiness Catherine tried to think it over in some other way the snow glare was more gray than ever and her eyes ached with it whichever way she turned the room was cold and her teeth chattered as she sat there half dressed then when she let in the hot air from the furnace it was dry and unbearable and she tried hard to find some other way in which to save her breaking heart if so be that she might look at it so as not to see the break and so perhaps if there were mercy in heaven beyond that aching snow glare that by not seeing she might feel a little less only a little less it was hard that she should have to feel so much and so very bitterly all at once but there was no other way instead of facing life with john ralston she now had to face life and john ralston how could she guess what he might do next a drunken man has little control of his faculties john might suddenly publish in the club the fact that he was her husband he was not the same john ralston whom she had married yesterday morning and whom she had seen yesterday afternoon for one moment at her door the hours had changed him instead of his face there was a horrible mask instead of his straight elastic figure there was the reeling dilapidated body of the drunken wretch her father had once shown her in the streets how could she love that thing it was not even a man she loathed it and hated it for it had broken her life she remembered having once broken a thermometer when she had been a little girl she remembered the jagged edge of glass and how the bright mercury had all run out and lost itself in tiny drops in the carpet she recalled it vividly and she felt that she was like the broken thermometer and the idea was not ridiculous to her as it must be to anyone else because she was badly hurt vague ideas of a long and painful sacrifice rose before her of something which must inevitably be begun and ended like an execution 
She had never understood what the inevitable meant until today. Then, all at once, the great question presented itself clearly, the great query, the enormous interrogation of which we are all aware, more or less dimly, more or less clearly, the question which is like the death-rattle in the throat of the dying nineteenth century. What is it all for? It came in a rush of passionate disappointment and anger and pain. It had come to Catherine before then, and she had faced it with the easy answer that it was for love, that it was all for love of John Ralston, life, its thoughts, its deeds, its hopes, its many fears, all for him, so far as Catherine Lauderdale was concerned. Love made God true, and heaven a fact, the angels her guardians now, and her companions hereafter, and her love had been so great that it had seemed to demand a wider wealth of heavenly things wherewith to frame it. God was hardly good enough, nor heaven broad enough. But if this were to be the end, what had it all meant? She stood before the window and looked at the grey sky till the reflection from the dead white snow beneath her window and on the opposite roof was painful. Yet the little physical pain was a relief. She turned quite suddenly and fell upon her knees beside the corner of the toilet table and buried her face in her hands and became conscious of prayer. That seemed to be the only way of describing what she felt. The wave of pain beat upon her agonized heart, and though the wave could not speak words, yet the surging and the moaning and the forward rushing and the backward whispering ebb were the sounds of many prayers. Was God good? How could she tell? Was he kind? She did not know. Merciful? What would be mercy to her? God was there, somewhere beyond the snow-glare that hurt so, and the girl's breaking heart cried to him, quite incoherently, and expecting nothing, but consciously, though it knew more of its own bitterness than of God's goodness just then. Momentarily the great question sank back into the outer darkness with which it was concerned, and little by little the religious idea of a sacrifice to be made was restored with greater stability than before. She had chosen her own burden, her own way of suffering, and she must bear all as well as she could. The waves of pain beat and crashed against her heart. She wondered childishly whether it were broken yet. She knew it was breaking, because it hurt her so. There was no connected thread of thought in the torn tissue of her mind, any more than there was any coherence in the few words which from time to time tried to form themselves on her lips without her knowledge. So long as she had been lying still and staring at the grey ceiling, the storm had been brooding. It had burst now, and she was as helpless in it as though it had been a real storm on a real sea, and she alone on a driving wreck. She lifted her face and wrung her hands together. It was as though someone from behind had taken a turn of rough rope round her breast, someone who was very strong, and as though the rope were tightening fast. Soon she should not be able to draw breath against it. As she felt it crushing her, she knew that the hideous picture her mind had made of John was coming before her eyes again. In a moment it must be there. This time she felt as though she must scream when she saw it. But when it came she made no sound. She only dropped her head again, 
and her forehead beat upon the back of her hands and her fingers scratched and drew the cover of the toilet table then the picture was drowned in the tide of pain as though it had fallen flat upon the dark sands between her and the cruel surf of her immense suffering that roared up to crash against her heart again it must break this time she thought it could not last for ever nor even all day long god was there somewhere a lull came and she said something aloud it seemed to her that she had forgotten words and had to make new ones although those she spoke were old and good with the sound of her own voice came a little courage and enough determination to make her rise from her knees and face daylight again mechanically as she continued to dress she looked at herself in the mirror her features did not seem to be her own she remembered to have seen a plaster cast from a death mask in a museum and her face made her think of that there were no lines in it, but there were shadows where the lines would be some day. The grey eyes had no light in them, and scarcely seemed alive. Her colour was that of wax, and there was something unnatural in the strong black brows and lashes. The door opened at that moment, and Mrs. Lauderdale entered the room. She seemed none the worse for having danced till morning, and the freshness which had come back to her had not disappeared again. She stood still for a moment, looking at Catherine's face as the latter turned towards her with an inquiring glance, in which there was something of fear and something of shyness. A nervous thoroughbred has the same look, if someone unexpectedly enters its box. Mrs. Lauderdale had a newspaper in her hand. "'How you look, child!' she exclaimed as she came forward. "'Haven't you slept? Or what is the matter?' She kissed Catherine affectionately, without waiting for an answer. "'Well, I don't wonder,' she added a moment later, as though speaking to herself. "'I've been reading this.' She paused and hesitated, as though not sure whether she should give Catherine the paper or not, and she glanced once more at the paragraph before deciding. "'What is it about?' Catherine asked in a tired voice. "'Read it.' "'Yes, but I ought to tell you first. You know, last night—' asked me about Jack Ralston, and I wouldn't tell you what I had heard. Then I saw that somebody else had told you. You really ought to be more careful, dear. Everybody was noticing it. What? Why, your face! It's of no use to advertise the fact that you are interested in Jack's doings. They don't seem to have been very creditable. It's just as well that he didn't try to come to the ball in his condition. Do you know what he was doing late last night, just about supper-time? I'm so glad I spoke to you both the other day. Imagine the mere idea of marrying a man who gets into drunken brawls with prize-fighters, and is taken home by the police. Stop! Please, don't talk like that! Catherine was trembling visibly. "'My dear child, it's far better that I should tell you. "'It's in the papers this morning. "'That sort of thing can't be concealed, you know. "'The first person you meet will talk to you about it.' "'Catherine had turned from her and was facing the mirror, "'steadying herself with her hands upon the dressing-table. "'And as for behaving as you did last night, he's not worth it. "'One might forgive him for being idle and all that.' "'But men who get tipsy in the streets and fight horse-car conductors and pugilists "'are not exactly the kind of people one wants to meet in society. "'To dance with, for instance. Just listen to this. "'Mother!' "'No, 
I want you to hear it. You can judge for yourself. Mr. John R., a well-known young gentleman about town, and a near relation of— Mother, please don't, cried Catherine, bending over the table, as though she could not hold up her head. One of our financial magnates, continued Mrs. Lauderdale inexorably, and the hero of more than one midnight adventure, has at last met his match in the person of Tam Shelton, the famous lightweight pugilist. An entirely unadvertised and scantily attended encounter took place between these two gentlemen last night, between eleven and twelve o'clock, in consequence of a dispute which had arisen in a horse-car. It appears that the representative of the four hundred had mistaken the public conveyance for his own comfortable quarters, and suddenly feeling very tired, had naturally proceeded to go to bed. With a very quick motion Catherine turned, took the paper from her mother's hands, and tore the doubled fourfold sheet through twice, almost without any apparent effort, before Mrs. Lauderdale could interfere. She said nothing as she tossed the torn bits under the table, but her eyes had suddenly got life in them again. "'Catherine!' exclaimed Mrs. Lauderdale in great annoyance. "'How can you be so rude?' "'And how can you be so unkind, mother?' said Catherine, facing her. "'Don't you know that I am suffering?' "'It's better to know everything and have it over,' answered Mrs. Lauderdale with astonishing indifference. It only seemed to me that, as every one would be discussing this abominable affair, you should know beforehand just what the facts are. I don't in the least wish to hurt your feelings, but now that it's all over with Jack, you may as well know. What may I as well know? That you hate him? That you have suddenly changed your mind? My dear, I'll merely ask you whether a man who does such things is respectable, yes or no. That's not the question answered Catherine, with rising anger. "'Something strange has happened to you. Until last Tuesday you never said anything against him. Then you changed, all in a moment, just as you would take off one pair of gloves and put on another. You used to understand me, and now—oh, mother!' Her voice shook, and she turned away again. The little momentary flame of her anger was swept out of existence by the returning tide of pain. Mrs. Lauderdale's whole character seemed to have changed, as her daughter said that it had, between one day and the next. A strong new passion had risen up in the very midst of it, and had torn it to shreds, as it were. Even now, as she gazed at Catherine, she was conscious that she envied the girl for being able to suffer without looking old. She hated herself for it, but she could not resist it, any more than she could help glancing at her own reflection in the mirror that morning, to see whether her face showed any fatigue after the long ball. This, at least, was satisfactory, for she was as brilliantly fresh as ever. She could hardly understand how she could have seemed so utterly broken down and weary on Monday night and all day Tuesday, but she could never forget how she had then looked, and the fear of it was continually upon her. Nevertheless, she loved Catherine still. The conflict between her love and her envy made her seem oddly inconsequent and almost frivolous. Catherine fancied that her mother was growing to be like Charlotte. The appealing tone of the girl's last words rang in Mrs. Lauderdale's ears and accused her. She stretched out her hand and tried to draw Catherine towards her, affectionately, as she often did when she was seated and the girl was standing. 
"'Catherine, dear child,' she began, "'I'm not changed to you. It's only—' "'Yes, it's only Jack,' answered Catherine bitterly. "'We won't talk of him, darling,' said Mrs. Lauderdale softly, and trying to soothe her. "'You see, I didn't know how badly you felt about it. "'You might have guessed. You know that I love him. You never knew how much.' "'Yes, sweetheart, but now there is no but. "'It's the passion of my life, the first, the last, and the only one. "'You're so young, my darling, that it seems to you as though there could never be anything else. "'Seems? I know!' "'Though Mrs. Lauderdale had already repented for what she had done, "'and really wished to be sympathetic, "'she could not help smiling faintly at the absolute conviction with which Catherine spoke.' There was something so young and so whole-hearted in the tone, as well as in those words, that only found an echo far back in the forgotten fields of the older woman's understanding. She hardly knew what to answer, and patted Catherine's head gently while she sought for something to say. But Catherine resented the affectionate manner, being in no humour to appreciate anything which had a savour of artificiality about it. She withdrew her hand and faced her mother again. "'I know all that you can tell me,' she said. "'I know all there is to be known without reading that vile thing. "'But I don't know what I shall do. "'I shall decide. "'And please, mother, if you care for me at all, don't talk about it. "'It's hard enough as it is. "'Just the thing, without any words.' "'She spoke with an effort, almost forcing the syllables from her lips, "'for she was suffering terribly just then. "'She wished that her mother would go away and leave her to herself, "'if only for half an hour.' She had so much more to think of than anyone could know or guess, except old Robert Lauderdale and Jack himself. "'Well, child, as you like,' said Mrs. Lauderdale, feeling that she had made a series of mistakes. "'I'm sure I don't care to talk about it in the least, but I can't prevent your father from saying what he pleases. Of course he began to make remarks about your not coming to breakfast this morning.' I didn't go down myself until he had nearly finished, and he seemed hurt at our neglecting him, and then he had been reading the paper, and so the question came up. But, dearest, don't think I'm unkind and heartless and all that sort of thing. I love you dearly, child. Don't you believe me? She put her arm around Catherine's neck and kissed her. Oh, yes, Catherine answered wearily. I'm sure you do. Mrs. Lauderdale looked into her face long and earnestly. "'It's quite wonderful,' she exclaimed at last. "'You're a little pale, but, after all, you're just as pretty as ever this morning.' "'Am I?' asked Catherine indifferently. "'I don't feel pretty.' "'Oh, well, that will all go away,' answered Mrs. Lauderdale, withdrawing her arm and turning towards the door. "'Yes,' she repeated thoughtfully, as though to herself— that will all go away. You're so young still, so young. Her head sank forward a little as she went out, and she did not look back at her daughter. Catherine drew a long breath of relief when she found herself alone. The interview had not lasted many minutes, but it had seemed endless. She looked at the torn pieces of the newspaper which lay on the floor, and she shuddered a little and turned from them uneasily, half afraid that some supernatural power might force her to stoop down and pick them up, and fit them together and read the paragraph to the end. She sat down to try and collect her thoughts. But she grew more and more confused as she reviewed the past and tried to call up the future. 
For instance, if John Ralston came to the house that afternoon to explain, to defend himself, to ask forgiveness of her, what should she say to him? Could she send him away without a word of hope? And if not, what hope should she give him? And hope of what? He was her husband. He had a right to claim her, if he pleased, before everyone. The words all seemed to be gradually losing their meaning for her. The bells of the horse-cars, as they passed through Clinton Place, sang queer little songs to her, and the snow-glare made her eyes ache. There was no longer any apparent reason why the day should go on, nor why it should end. She did not know what time it was, and she did not care to look. What difference did it make? Her ball-gown was lying on the sofa, as she had laid it when she had come home. She looked at it, and wondered vaguely whether she should ever again take the trouble to put on such a thing, and to go and show herself amongst a crowd of people who were perfectly indifferent to her. On reflection, for she seriously tried to reflect, it seemed more probable that John would write before coming, and this would give her an opportunity of answering. It would be easier to write than to speak. But if she wrote, what would she say? It was just as hard to decide, and the words would look more unkind on paper, perhaps, than she could possibly make them sound. Was it her duty to speak harshly? She asked herself the question quite suddenly, and it startled her. If her heart were really broken, she thought, there could be nothing for her to do but to say once what she thought, and then begin the weary life that lay before her, an endless stretch of glaring snow, and endless jingling of horse-car bells. She rose suddenly and roused herself, conscious that she was almost losing her senses. The monstrous incongruity of the thoughts that crossed her brain frightened her. She pressed her hand to her forehead, and with characteristic strength determined there and then to occupy herself in some way or other during the day. To sit there in her room much longer would either drive her mad or make her break down completely. She feared the mere thought of those tears in which some women find relief, almost as much as the idea of becoming insane, which presented itself vividly as a possibility just then. Whatever was to happen during the day, she must at any cost have control over her outward actions. She stood for one moment with her hands clasped to her brows, and then turned and left the room. End of chapter 21